we're launching a, a brand new series uh, in light of the season of Lent and Easter, of course, but it will probably extend even uh, beyond that season for some time. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26. And it's on the screen for us. I don't know if you can see that, but I will read it for us. Listen closely, follow along. Paul is writing. This is his first letter to the church in the city of Corinth. And he said, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord Himself. On the night when He was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. The Eucharist. Eucharist is the title of this series that will be digging into over these weeks, and it's something that is not a luxury, but a necessity for the people of God. Without it, we would, in the spiritual sense, starve to death. The Eucharist is the fount and the apex, or the source and the summit of the whole Christ-following life. It is both the fountain from which life in Christ flows and the objective toward which it tends. It is the alpha and the omega of Christian discipleship. It is the divine life-giving energy without which authentic Christianity runs down. Without the Eucharist, we would be or could be a pious congregation of like-minded people or a society dedicated to the memory and teaching of Jesus, but we couldn't possibly be the church that Jesus is building without the Eucharist. The church, in fact, comes from the Eucharist. The body and blood of Jesus are not simply the sacred objects at the center of the church's concern, they are the church. It's lifeblood and it's reason for existence. When we consider the vast majority of Jesus' teaching and commands to love one's enemies, to turn the other cheek, to forgive 70 times, 7 times, etc., they have been rather consistently disregarded. 
as G.K. Chesterton aptly pointed out, it is not that Christianity has been tried and found wanting, but rather that it has been found difficult and never tried. However, there is one command of Jesus that has up and down the centuries of church history been massively obeyed. Throughout the long history of the church, through a whole series of dramatic successes and failures, despite the stupidity and wickedness of so many Christians, the command, do this in memory of me, has been and continues to be obeyed. Amazing. It's as though Christians in all our sin have realized from the beginning that the spiritual life depends upon the Eucharist the way the physical life depends upon food and oxygen and water. And so almost despite ourselves, we do what Jesus told us to do in His memory. The matter of the Eucharist is huge and is freighted with values. Thousands of treaties, essays, sermons, and reflections have been dedicated to it over the centuries. Its mysteries and its dimensions are endless precisely because the Eucharist is Christ. The one in whom, according to St. Paul, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2, verse 3. One could easily build an entire theology around the central motif of the Eucharist, showing how it is intimately related to the doctrines of creation, revelation, Christology with the study of Christ, grace, redemption, and that study of last things, eschatology. However, what I would like us to do in this series of sermons is to focus our study on three primary themes of the Eucharist. That of meal... Everybody say meal. Sacrifice and reality. The reality of the presence of God. The Eucharist is first the great meal of fellowship that God wants to establish with His people. As we're going to see in the coming weeks, Jesus spent a lot of time around the meal table with people. The Eucharist is the great meal of fellowship that God wants to establish with His people. The joyful bond in which the divine life is shared spiritually and physically with a hungry world. However, communion in a fallen, broken world is impossible without sacrifice. In a universe that has become twisted and out of joint 
and beset by division and perversion and hatred and fear and violence, the establishment of real love and justice and peace, all things being put right, will only come at the price of suffering. Hence, the Eucharist is also the embodiment of Jesus' great act of self-giving love in sacrificial suffering on the cross at Calvary. In the separate consecration of the bread and the wine, we see symbolically expressed the separation of Christ's body and blood that took place in the process of His dying. What we eat and what we drink at this fellowship meal that we share called the Eucharist or Holy Communion or the Lord's Table or the different names that we've given to it the food that we eat and the drink that we drink at this meal therefore is nothing other than the death of Jesus the act by which he gave himself away for the salvation of the world the redemption of all creation. While this meal contains a symbolic dimension to it, the Eucharist is more than merely a symbol. More than a concoction. However sentimentally moving and evocative of our own religious imagination, it's more than that. In the sharing of this meal, Jesus is present to us through His own power and in His fully packed objectivity as both food and sacrificial offering. There's something mysterious and terrible and uncontrollable in the reality of this presence. The Eucharist is not our product. It's not our idea. It's not our resource. The Lord's table is not our table in the sense that it belongs to us. It is ours in that He shares it with us and calls us to it. But it is His. It is our Lord Himself. And as such... The Eucharist calls us to transformation. I'd like to begin with a story. Are you up for a story this morning? I'd like to begin with a story to set the table, if you will allow me the pun. As is most often the case, the poets say it best. In 1956, the Danish writer Isaac Dennison, the pen name of Karen Blixen, published a story called Babette's Feast, which many years later provided the basis for an extremely popular film, and perhaps you've seen it, as I have. 
or you're familiar, you've read the story. Denison's story is about many things. The Bet's Feast is about many things. It's about friendship. It's about loss. It's about spiritual devotion. It's about sensual delight. It's about loyalty. But it is, I think, primarily about the Eucharist. In fact, I know of no other literary text that so fully and completely expresses the complex themes that all cluster around this central Christian mystery. The narrative is set in the late 19th century in a remote village nestled at the foot of a mountain at the edge of a Danish fort. Two sisters, Martine and Philippa, the daughters of a revered Lutheran pastor who had founded an ardent collective of followers, preside over the small community. Though these disciples of the dean, as they called him, were still admired throughout the country, their numbers were diminishing, and the remaining adepts were getting whiter and balder and harder of hearing. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of our churches, doesn't it? They were getting whiter and balder and harder of hearing. <laughs> the great mark of this austere fellowship was Puritanism. The conviction that all earthly joys must be set aside if the journey toward the heavenly Jerusalem was to be facilitated. So, they would eat the simplest of meals and live in the most frugal surroundings so that they would be free to help the poor and give themselves to prayer. We hear that Martine and Philippa have a maid in their employ. And her name is Babette. When they were young women, both sisters were remarkably beautiful and accordingly attracted a number of suitors. However, whenever prospective husbands would come forward seeking the dean's permission, the old man would respond that his daughters were his right and left hand. Typical fatherly response, right? And thus, they are indispensable to him. Indeed, the girls themselves had accepted an ideal of heavenly love, as they called it. And therefore, they did not let themselves be touched by the flames of the world. Nevertheless, in their youth, both were beguiled by romantic possibilities. In 1854, when Martine was 18, a dashing military officer named Lawrence Lewenhilm presented himself at the dean's home and was immediately smitten by the young woman. He followed her about like a lost puppy. He sought her out. He visited her home, but became hopelessly tongue-tied and self-conscious around the dean's table, incapable of communicating his feelings. 
things. He loved her, but he knew that he would never be able to break down the wall of pious reserve that she had constructed around herself. Finally, on the day before he was due to leave, Martine showed him to the door. In his desperation, he grabbed her hand, pressed it to his lips, and uttered, I am going away forever. I shall never, never see you again. For I have learned here that fate is hard, and that in this world there are things which are impossible. Upon returning home, he resolved to forget about the romance and to concentrate upon the cultivation of his military career. A year later, an even more distinguished person came to the small town. Achille Payne. He was a Frenchman, one of the most impressive opera singers of the time. And he had spent a week with the Royal Opera in Stockholm. He had heard of the ravishing beauty of the Norwegian coast and decided to see on his way back to France. On a Sunday, he wandered into the small church of the dean's congregation, and he heard Philippa sing. The girl had a voice so glorious that Papin became convinced that the music world of Paris would be at her feet. Through the sheer force of his personality, he managed to secure the dean's permission and commenced to work with Philippa in vocal lessons. His original intuitions were confirmed in the course of the lessons, and he predicted that soon she would be the finest singer of her time. My greatest triumphs are before me. The world will once more believe in miracles when she and I sing together, he thought. So ecstatic would be her reception that nobles and ladies in Paris would conduct her after her performance to the finest restaurant in the city, the Café Anglais, where a sumptuous supper would be spread before her. During one of the vocal sessions, Achille and Philippa sang the seduction duet from Mozart's Don Giovanni. As the last notes faded into the air, the master took his disciple in his arms and kissed her. Immediately afterward, Philippa asked her father to write to Mr. Papin, informing him that she wanted no further vocal lessons. Heartbroken, the great singer returned to France on the first boat, convinced that something irrevocable had been lost. Fifteen years later, the bell rope of the sisters' home was violently pulled. When they opened the door, they found a pale, frightened woman who, upon taking one step inside, fell into a dead swoon. When she came around, the mysterious visitor produced a letter written in French 
and signed by none other than Achille Papin, who had just a year before left on the first boat. The letter served as an introduction to the woman who stood trembling and anxious before them, Babette Hersant. She had been, Papin explained, a petrolus, a female activist, or literally a fire starter during the recent communard uprising in Paris, and had lost her brother and her husband and her son in the fighting. Unable to remain in France, she was seeking, at Pepin's suggestion, refuge with the kind sisters whom he had known years before. He closed the letter with the tossed-off remark, Babette can cook. So it was that in great generosity of spirit, the sisters in this, took in this forlorn refugee. And in time, in the friendly surroundings of their household, Babette acquired all the appearance of a respectable and trusted servant. Due to the fact that they were suspicious of French cooking, the French after all, they had heard eight frogs. They taught Babette how to prepare their customary meal of split cod and ale and bread soup. Given their religious commitments, they explained, their food must be as plain as possible. Luxury at the table, they considered an immoral extravagance. Though she never mastered Norwegian, and though she remained something of an enigma to the people of the village, Babette was eventually accepted as a respected member of the community. We learn as the story returns to the present day, and I'm skipping over some things here, that the 100th anniversary of the Dean's birthday is approaching and that the sisters want to do something special to celebrate the date. Even as they contemplate this happy commemoration, they are somewhat distressed and disappointed that the spirit of their father seemed to have dissipated among his followers. For discord and dissension had been raising their heads in his flock. The essential problem expressed in a variety of ways and contexts was the inability to forgive. Martine and Philippa vaguely hoped that the upcoming festivities commemorating their father would serve to restore unity and to bring the spiritual family together again. As they were considering how to best mark the day, a letter arrived from France for Babette, containing the improbable news that she had won 10,000 francs in the national lottery. Soon after, Babette begged the sisters 
to, per- to permit her to cook a celebratory dinner in honor of the dean's birthday. This proposal took the sisters by surprise, for while they intended to somehow celebrate the day, they had no intention of sponsoring a festive dinner. But their cook was so insistent and eager in her pleading that eventually they gave in. And Babette has more to say. She wanted to cook for their guests, not the simple, bland, unappetizing fare to which they were accustomed but rather she wanted to cook them a real, sumptuous, full-course French dinner. And she wanted to pay for it herself. When the sisters balked, Babette stepped forward with great and even frightening resolve and said, Ladies, have I ever during 12 years asked you a favor? No. And why not? What would I have had to beg or implore you pray for? What, what? Nothing. Tonight I have an appeal, a request to make from the bottom of my heart. And the sisters' resistance broke down and they granted Babette her request to cook this incredible meal. One month before the feast was to happen, Babette went on a journey, her first in 12 years. When she returned, she announced that the goods necessary for the dinner were ordered and on their way. Though the very idea of elaborate preparations for a meal required a journey to a foreign country was preposterous to the sisters, they gave themselves into their cook's hands. During the next days, the food and drink and other accoutrements began to arrive. They were surprised by the numerous bottles of wine, each with a label carefully providing its name and point of origin. Martine never dreamed that wines could have names. But they were flabbergasted beyond words by the enormous and primordial-looking turtle that poked its snake-like head out of its greenish-black shell. The sisters began to fear that in surrendering to the wish of their French cook, they were making their father's house into the setting for a witch's Sabbath. When Martine and Philippa communicated their fears to their friends and neighbors, everybody agreed that they would eat the French meal out of deference to Babette, but that as a protest, they would not speak of it and they would not take any pleasure in it whatsoever. One of the white-bearded elders said, on the day of our master, we will cleanse our tongues of all taste and purify them of all delight or disgust of the senses, keeping and preserving them for the highest things of praise and thanksgiving. The great dinner took place on Sunday, the Lord's Day. The first guest to arrive was old Mrs. Lewenhilm, the military officer's mother, who at 90 
had lost practically all of her hearing and sense of taste, and who was as such the embodiment of the community's puritanical indifference to the pleasure of this world. She was escorted by her nephew, now General Lewinhill, the man who as a young officer so many years before had sought unsuccessfully to court Martine. He happened to be visiting his aunt at this time, and the old lady, concerned about his listless spirits, had pressed the sisters to invite him. Though he has achieved all of his world goals, satisfying all of his career ambitions, the general felt unaccountably depressed and came to the dinner only reluctantly. In time, the other guests arrived until the drawing room was filled with 12 celebrants. One very old brother, in his trembling voice, then began to sing a hymn and that they had composed. In fact, it had been composed by the dean himself. Jerusalem, my happy home, name ever dear to me. Gradually, the guests took up the well-known tune, and as they sang, they joined hands in fellowship. So caught up were they in the spirit of the moment that they took up a second hymn, and hands still joined, sang it through to the very end. After this impromptu chorale prelude, they entered the dining room, where there was the table there before them, elegantly prepared, the glasses and the silverware gleaming in the light from a row of flickering candles. When everyone was seated, one of the elders recited the lovely grace that the dean had given them. May my food and my body maintain, may my body and my soul sustain, may my soul in Deed and in word, give thanks for all things to the Lord. Then they all commenced to eat and drink. General Lewinhelm, the only guest at the table, who had not vowed to take no sensual delight in the meal, now wore a puzzled expression. For the wine he was sipping was, he could hardly believe it, Amontillado. And the finest Amontillado that I have ever tasted. And the soup was turtle soup. The best he had ever had. Then a new dish was served. And as everyone quietly ate, the general thought to himself, It is Blinis Demidov. But when he tasted the main course, his astonishment was complete. Many years before, at the Café Anglais in Paris, he had eaten an incredible recherche and palatable dish, forgive my poor French. That is, in a very rare, it was a very rare and delicious dish called Calais en Sarcophage, which had been invented by the chef of that establishment, the Café Anglais. Turning the man to the on his left, the general said, but this 
is Calais on sarcophage. Having no idea what the general was talking about, the man said with utter blandness, yes, yes, certainly. What else could it be? <laughs> As the meal progressed, something strange and wonderful was happening. As stories of the dean were exchanged, and as the fine food and the wine gradually were having their effect, old animosities were melting away. Old resentments that were being held. Broken friendships were being repaired. A spirit of forgiveness and good cheer seemed to take hold of all those around the table. So moved by what he had experienced at the banquet, and still regretting his tongue-tied self-consciousness in this same home so many years before, General Lewinholm rose to speak. He himself was surprised by the words that came out of his mouth. For though he had been formally trained to give commands and orations on drill grounds and in royal halls, he now felt that he was but a vehicle for a higher presence. In our human foolishness and short-sightedness, he said, we imagine that grace is finite. But the moment comes when our eyes are opened and we realize that grace is infinite. Grace, my friends, he went on, demands nothing of us, but that we shall await it with confidence and acknowledge it with gratitude. Grace takes us all to its bosom and proclaims general amnesty. In the wake of this extraordinary oration, the entire house seemed suffused with the very grace that the general spoke of. The narrative of the story reads, The rooms had been filled with a heavenly light, as if a number of small halos had been blended into one glorious radiance. Taciturn old people, with the disposition of being closed-mouthed and disinclined to share conversation, suddenly received the gift of tongues, hearing that for years had been almost deaf, their ears were opened. Time itself had merged into eternity. All during the meal, it had been snowing outside so that when the guests were taking their leave, they noticed the entire countryside was blanketed in white. As they set out, they staggered and wavered on their feet, slipping and sliding in the snow. Some slipped down or fell forward so that their elbows, backsides, and knees were covered in white. And as they walked away, they were skipping and frolicking about like little lambs. But the story does not end on this gentle note. All things simply reconciled. All enemies simply forgiven. Our attention shifts now to the kitchen so that we can see the price that was paid to make this mystical grace-filled gathering possible. We are told, bluntly enough, that Babette alone had had no share in the bliss of the evening. 
like a sacrificial victim, Babette sat on the chopping block, surrounded by a massive mess of greasy pots and pans, as exhausted and deadly white as she had been on the night when the sisters first took her in. After 12 years of silence on this point, she then spoke her identity. I was once the cook at the Café Anglais. This meant little to the sisters, but Babette continued laying out to them the full extent of her sacrifice. Her husband and son were gone, lost, as we have heard, in the communard uprising, but gone too were the whole bevy of gentlemen and aristocrats who used to frequent the Café Anglais. Babette's world had disappeared. Moreover, she had, she said to them, I have no money. When the sisters protested that she had just won the French lottery, Babette calmly explained that she had spent every cent of her winnings on the great dinner. Beloved, this story and the symbolism that suffuses it serve as a framework for us in this sermon series and our study of the Eucharist. The basic and foundational motif is that the gracefulness of the meal is interwoven with and made possible by a whole series of sacrifices, most notably Babette's. Recall with me for a moment that the dean's congregation is characterized by a rather marked dualism or pronounced Puritanism, according to which the things of God are divorced from the affairs and pleasures of this world. While this has haunted the Christian tradition from the beginning, this kind of dualism is in fact deeply unbiblical. According to the scriptural reading, God is intimately involved in the world that He has made. And every corner and every crevice of creation speaks of the beauty of the Creator. Accordingly, the biblical imagination is not dualist, but rather sacramental. Everybody say sacramental. It's sacramental, not Sacramento, California, but sacramental. Though the world and the cosmos is most certainly other than God, they serve as an icon, if you will, of the one who made them and who called them good. And therefore, whatever is good and true and beautiful in creation functions as a potential point of contact between human beings and God. In their conviction that the heavenly Jerusalem is attained only through avoiding on moralistic grounds the pleasures of this world, in their exaggerated, legalistic, if you will, asceticism, the dean's congregation had lost sight of this basic and beautiful truth. 
In fact, the very sadness and dwindling size of the community could be seen as consequences of this forgetfulness. One of the most poignant features of the story is that this dualist asceticism that they gave themselves to extended as far as precluding the sisters from romantic involvement. They had rejected the flames of this world, as they called them, in order to give themselves to the service of God, and hence they both had turned away from giving themselves to the love of a man. Then, into this dualistic milieu, this context, comes unexpectedly a visitor from another world. Babette, the master chef, accustomed to the highest and finest things, arrived from France, but she was weak and lonely and bore the haggard look of a beggar. This, beloved, is our first clue that the exiled cook is a figure of Christ. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul said that Christ, though He was God, gave up His divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. Philippians 2, 6 and 7, Christ Jesus left His natural dwelling place and willingly entered into the limitations of our world in order to transfigure it by His presence. Paul comments in a similar vein that in generous grace, though He was rich, yet for our sakes He became poor, so that by His poverty He could make us rich. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. So this story of Denison says, in the very cadences of Paul, that though Babette appeared to be a beggar, she turned out to be a conqueror. However, the transformation that she effects is not an immediate one. Rather, it is prepared for by a long period of humble identification with those to whom she was sent. Twelve years, in fact. Although she was one of the finest chefs in Europe, she willingly agreed to prepare the simplest and the least appetizing of meals every day. Although she was accustomed to mingling with the elite of French society, she acquiesced to making the rounds of an obscure Norwegian fishing village. But all the while, clandestinely, secretly, subversively, she is having her effect. Her quiet countenance and her steady, deep glance had magnetic qualities. Under her eyes, things moved noiselessly into their proper places, as the author writes it. In a word, Babette's humble self-emptying was remaking a disordered world from within. What a picture 
of what genuine kingdom living looks like and how the kingdom of God works. It's not showy. It's not sensational. It's quiet. It's gentle. It's humble. It's patient. Reordering and remaking a disordered world from within. It's not arrogant. It's not obnoxious. It's not in your face. It's like salt that slowly and quietly works. It's like light gently rising upon the day. We see the full-blown extent of this sacrifice and this remaking of Babette's only in regard to the great meal that she prepares. There we see it in its full-blown form. After 12 years, it is a biblical commonplace that God desires to express His intimacy with His people through festive meal. In the prophet Isaiah, we find wonderful images of a great feast that God will host on the summit of the holy mountain. There will be, we are told, listen to this, Isaiah 25, verse 6, there will be a, a spread, a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. It will be a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wines and choice meat. Some of the Jewish wisdom writings attributed to Solomon picture God as a Jewish mother spreading a sumptuous feast before her people. A meal at which the good things of this world become evocative of the divine presence and at which brothers and sisters sit down in intimacy with God and one another. It's a consistent biblical symbol of what God desires for us. It's absolutely no accident then that Jesus Himself takes up this theme, embodying it in His ministry of table fellowship. All were welcome around the table of Jesus. The rich, the poor, the respectable, and the marginalized, the saint and the sinner, the healthy and the sick, all were welcome around His table. This festive eating and drinking was appreciated by Jesus as an eschatological symbol speaking of the coming of His kingdom and the new heaven and new earth. The newly created world. A picture of last things as a concrete realization of Isaiah's dream of divine human fellowship. And at the culmination moment of Jesus' life, what do we see happening? We read about it in our text. Jesus sat down with His twelve apostles and what does He do? He hosts a final meal. Recapitulating the whole of the biblical tradition of the festive meal and summing up the whole of His life and ministry, Jesus fed His apostles with His very self, offering Himself to them in a total sacrifice, dying that they might live, 
Take this, he said, all of you, and eat it, for this is my body. Take this, all of you, and drink it, for this is the chalice of my blood. And so Babette, as the culmination of her life and work among the people of the village, hosted a meal, which at a symbolic level is the Last Supper and the very root system of our gathered worship and life as a people of God. It occurred appropriately enough, did you catch this? On a Sunday. The day of our corporate worship together. They began with singing. They sang a hymn evocative of our worship in song. The disciples, when they gathered with Jesus on that last evening, they sang a hymn together. Then they entered a great dining room and sat at a table bedecked with candles in the manner of an altar. At this table, a sumptuous, expensive, delightful meal was served. As they ate and drank, their spirits were uplifted. Old memories were stirred. Resentment seemed to melt away. Forgiveness was offered. And in the words of Martine, the stars have come nearer. God, who is nothing but grace, through the mediation of the sensual sign of Babette's feast, had blessed His people. Heaven was not, as they imagined, far away. And in its light, they saw the earth for the first time as it really was. The Eucharist is a sacred meal, beloved, at which God, in sheer and absolute graciousness, feeds His people with His own substance, uniting them to Him and to one another, offering the forgiveness of sins and displaying a new vision, a new creation vision of the world. And this communion was made possible by a terrible sacrifice in order to allow grace to flow. It's a basic biblical truth that we will elaborate more upon in the Uh, more fully in the course of this sermon series. But it's a basic biblical truth that a world gone wrong can be corrected only through sacrifice. That is to say, through an act of self-giving love which takes on evil and reworks it from within. Jesus gives away His body and blood. There is a rather shocking detail mentioned at the very end of Babette's feast. And as I didn't share it with you, but let me do that as we conclude. As the dumbfounded sisters were trying to take in the full significance of their maid, Babette's gift, Martine remembered a tale that an African missionary had once recounted to her father. It seems that the missionary had saved the life of an old chief's favorite wife. And in gratitude, the chief had treated the Christian missionary to a meal. 
Only many years afterward did the missionary learn from one of his own servants. He didn't realize this at the time, but he learned it many years afterwards from one of his own servants that the main course of the meal had been a small, fat grandchild of the chiefs cooked in honor of the great Christian medicine man. As the chief looked at this Christian missionary as this great medicine man. Meal and sacrifice coalesced around the densely textured reality of what was offered. His own son. Now this is repulsive to think about, obviously. And and though it repulsed her, Martine, to even think about it, Martine realized that Babette had affected something very similar, giving herself away as a sacrifice that made possible a meal of grace. So real was her gift that it was as though they were eating and drinking the very substance of her sacrifice. Likewise, what the first disciples and what we are invited to eat is the very self that Jesus offers up in sacrifice. The grace of communion was so real because the sacrifice of self was so real. In this interweaving of meal and sacrifice and reality, of Christ's presence, meal, sacrifice, Christ's presence, we discover the heart of the Eucharist. 